This is WIC, What is Global Health? The podcast of the Journal of Global Health at Columbia University. This episode, The Religion of Science Conquering the Unknowable, is the first part of a two-part podcast series dealing with issues of religion and science. In this episode, I, Emma Chang, have the honor of speaking with Dr. Robert Pollack, a highly influential and involved academic figure on Columbia University's campus. He currently serves as a professor of biological sciences an adjunct professor of science and religion at the Union Theological Seminary, a faculty member of the Earth Institute, and the director of the Center of the Study of Science and Religion. In this podcast, Dr. Robert Pollack discusses the nature of science in relation to the concept of unknowable and describes the boundary between religion and science. To begin, I asked Dr. Pollack for his own personal definition of religion and science. I'm happy to do this as a biology professor at Columbia and as the director of the Center for the Study of Science and Religion at Columbia and as somebody who came from uh, Coney Island, Abraham Lincoln High School many years ago to Columbia College from which I have never left. So to answer the question really means answering the question in a Columbia-based context. I've been around, but this is my address. So now... um, I can define my definitions of science and religion, and they'll sound like they emerged through the Columbia College core, because they did. So I would say I understand religion from its root, which is to be tied back, re-ligated, if you will, um, held back from wrong behavior, which is to say uh, a set of behaviors and rules, beliefs and understandings not derived from any previous argument, but self-evident and requiring um, obedience for the sake of some larger claim of justice, fairness, goodness, or for that matter, supernatural survival after death. doesn't matter the reason. The main thing about being a religious person is that you claim a constraint on your behavior, which you do not claim can be explained by other aspects of the world. It's a A priori, this we do, this we don't do. Um, I think in that, uh, religion is a specifically human trait. I don't think other primates have the mental capacity for the imagination and interactive sociability sufficient to come to agree as groups as to what we do and what we don't do in advance of the temptation. So I'd say everybody is religious. The issue is whether their religion is self-serving or whether their religion is compassionate or whether their religion is um, like or unlike the people you're familiar with. That helps you feel comfortable or not comfortable with a person's religion, but everybody is religious. The most bizarre religion in my experience is the religion of science. And the religion of science simply says everything is explainable. And if I pick the right way to ask it, I can explain it in my lifetime. So that there's nothing unknowable. And I think that's a religious position, the same as any other religious position, because science is, in my experience as a scientist, the one stable human way to understand something that is unknown about nature and converted from unknown to known. This machine for asking of nature, why is it this way, is built on the most wonderful framework of human imagination. The answer doesn't become right because you're smart. 
clever or articulate, it becomes right because you frame your question in a way that can be subject to disproof. Mm -hmm. And then the science, the experimental part of science, is to try your damnedest to disprove your idea. And when your idea resists disproof, it becomes a scientific fact. Mm -hmm. So the edifice of science is the edifice of what scientists have failed to tear down. And that's why science is intrinsically competitive, sometimes quite unpleasant, but honorable. Age, circumstance, title, all fall before the experimental structure which shows something to be so because it so brilliantly fails to disprove something. Mm -hmm. now, the religion-science boundary, in my mind, is very simple. It's the question, is there anything that science cannot approach? Is there anything unknowable? that the machine for going from unknown to known can't approach because it's intrinsically unknowable. Right. So my understanding is the question itself requires a statement of faith. If you say as a statement of faith, beyond everything currently unknown, there is nothing unknowable, then your religion is that of science. But you can't be sure of it because... What's beyond, it's beyond what's already unknown. Yes. So you don't know the answer, but you believe everything's understandable. Okay, that's a religion to me. The other religions, which we call religion, all say in one or another way, beyond everything known and everything unknown but knowable is something intrinsically unknowable. I don't care what that unknowable thing is. The idea to have the modesty and Humility to say, I will never know, none of us will ever know something, begins the, the life of being religious in a non-science-based way. So the question you frame, I would put differently. There's a religion of science, and there are all other religions. All other religions admit something unknowable. Science is the religion of denying the unknowable. Both are religious positions. For my part, I choose the ordinary religious position, because it seems to me the only thing to do, since yeah. I can't be sure. Mm -hmm. Why would I want to claim something that as a scientist I can't test? It's not right. disprovable. So I throw up my hands and I say, I live as if there's something unknowable, because I can't do otherwise. That makes me a religious person. So just like something that you said about denying the unknowable, mm -hmm. that's just because I went to a talk with Stuart Firestein mm -hmm. recently, and uh, his, he wrote a book about ignorance. Mm -hmm. So. Do you agree with his opinion? Tell me what his opinion is. Like, his opinion is scientists, they are in this constant state of ignorance, and they can't ever, just like you were saying, not being able to access unknowable. They kind of have to learn how to embrace that. That was part of his argument, and he was just, like, talking about the role of ignorance in science, how you can never find exactly the answer, but you can keep trying. I'm, I, I, I would agree with that, but mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think that's exactly what I'm saying. Right. I'm saying that there are matters of importance to a mortal human being which are not accessible to science. It's not that science has to keep trying. It does. To go from unknown to known is a, is a fantastic accomplishment of the human mind. But to say, because I accept things may be unknowable, I will make my choice as a scientist to study those things that I think can be knowable, and I will live inside a residue of unknowability. Now, I set up the Center for the Study of Science and Religion because what I just said is the residue of unknowability. It turns out to be full of interesting problems. Like, if we're all mortal as a consequence of natural selection, 
how do I know what's the most important thing to do? So I say one answer, which is my career, is I don't know, but I will bet that it's worthwhile to take what I do know and teach it to people much younger than me so that they will have it in hand when I'm not there. That's a, an optimistic religious position which drives the justification for teaching frontiers of science, which right. I'm going to be doing in the spring. So that's one answer mm -hmm. to, to so I, I, don't, I think it's a false dichotomy, science or religion. Right. It, the, the dichotomy is, is fantasy of, of total, total knowledge as against mm -hmm. settling for good enough. So I think also like another thing I want to ask about is that in science, like there are always these studies or popular uh, articles that say like, oh, the majority of scientists are atheists. Or mm -hmm. there's certain like really mm -hmm. outspoken mm -hmm. scientists who claim that they're mm -hmm. atheists. So mm -hmm. like, why do you think that is so? Does that indicate something about how scientists think nowadays? Serious first class scientists begin their careers and stay in their careers in all ways, always saying, I have nothing to say, I can't say if you're right or wrong, because I don't know how to take your question and turn it into a disprovable, testable mm -hmm. hypothesis. So, one way to say I can't take God's existence as a disprovable, testable hypothesis is to say God doesn't exist. Another way is to say I don't know. Yeah. Pascal's bet. I'll live as if it's so because it's a better life. Both are equally valid responses. Neither is a scientist's response. That's my point. So the question goes to when people who wish to be freed from the burden of unknowability use the language of science, it sounds like science is atheistic. Science is neither atheistic nor theistic. It has nothing to say because there's nothing disprovable about the idea of heaven or the idea of an afterlife, or the idea of an informing intelligence, or the idea that commandments are given 4,000 years ago by which you must live. Right. You choose to live by that, that's one kind of life. You choose to say, no, I'll go along with my own mind, that's another kind of life. And there are very many kindly, caring, good people who have no religious life. But they are not necessarily scientists, and they don't have to be scientists. There's no science in atheism. It is a religious position. I will find what's important to do without calling upon anything that isn't subject to disproof. I don't have that strength. If there are people strong enough to say, I'll make my way as a moral person with nothing but data, good for them. Okay. I had a hat, excuse me, I have a teacher. Um, who is a, a, tra a rabbi, a uh, translator of Jewish text into many languages, including uh, Chinese and Russian and uh, Spanish and Portuguese. Um, he lives in Israel. His name is Adin Steinsaltz. And when I was asking him your question, he said this way. He said, if you have a friend who says the throne of God is empty, that person is stronger than you. Make sure you retain his friendship, but first make sure he does not put himself on that throne. That's a good reason to be a religious person. So to avoid the risk of putting yourself on the throne of saying you know things you don't know. Okay, A scientist never says anything he or she doesn't know. Uh, an atheist might run into that risk. A religious person runs into that risk all the time. That's why it's hard to be a scientist and a religious yeah. person. You have to often just have nothing to say. 
And also, like, I know in some of your articles, you've kind of talked about how being religious can also give you certain moral constraints. So that's also kind of linked to what you're saying. I, I guess, I guess I, I, I'm a biologist, and I'm more and more impressed with what our DNA's got to tell us about our history and our essential, central, totally defining necessity for socialization and the interest in others and the interest of others in our life from from conception to death. And it's most apparent in the first year of life when an infant is totally helpless without being cared for and loved. And in that caring and love and looking at each other, the infant and the mother become two people rather than by imitation. It's not by imitation. It's the discovery of of a mind in oneself. And it becomes apparent again at the end of life when people are again helpless and there is no utility to them and there is no productivity from them and there is only the human obligation to care for them. So one of our projects, which you'll find in the CSSR, is run by a wonderful student named Ashley Shaw. She runs a volunteer program at the Terence Cardinal Cook Hospital on Fifth Avenue, which is a tertiary care hospital for end of life. It's not a hospital. It's to keep people socially uh, socially engaged and out of pain for as long as possible. And it's run in a religious context. It's run in, in the Catholic Church, operates it, welcomes people of any background. And the medical director, I think, would, would laugh at the idea that he needs to know whether somebody in there is religious or not. The whole operation is religious by the willingness of people to put their time in with people who are going to die. And if you want to know the burden of that kind of religious life in science and medicine, it's that all the funding algorithms that reward hospitals for, for effectiveness reject this hospital because yeah. everybody dies. So there's no recognition of the medicine of the end of life, yet everybody dies. So there the question back to you is, it's not a science question, it's not a religion question, it's an education question. Why do people deny what they know? How do they so effectively act as if they're not going to die so that the political structure does not accept the success of a hospital which carries people at peace to yeah. the end of their lives? Why is that invisible? That's invisible in the same way a person who is both religious and a scientist is invisible. It doesn't fit the categories. But the categories are categories driven more by denial of what's frightening than they are by full acknowledgement of what's so. Mm -hmm. And also, another question that I had was, since you do teach Frontiers of Science, mm -hmm. and you do teach at the college, I was wondering if you personally thought, like, school curriculums were, oftentimes, for example, they don't teach anything about creationism, they only teach about evolution. And do you think that this is, like, some a flaw in the education system, and something that is kind of driven by our, like, our perception of science today? In teaching Frontiers, I have uh, more than once had a student say, okay, I'll say on an exam what you want me to say. Life is 4 billion years old. The species is 7 million years old. Natural selection is its mechanism. It's driven by random error subject to positive selection for survival of the sequence. All of life is DNA's way making more DNA. I, I can say all of that, but I know the world was created 6,000 years ago. And I know everything is as it says in the Bible, because the Bible is literally true. And I wouldn't want to argue with somebody like that any more than I want somebody like that to argue with me. So what I discovered to say when a student says that is, what I began by saying to you, look, 
I'm stuck if we can't disprove an idea. The problem with your response is you're in a world of non-disprovability. So believe it, enjoy it, live by it, I have nothing to say. But you're stuck with the failure to disprove natural selection. So you've got to fit it in somehow. Okay? I wouldn't say throw anything out, but fit this in or deny reality. And I said, once I said, here's an example of a non-disprovable version of what I do. Here's a hypothesis. The world was created not 6,000 years ago, but 20 minutes ago, complete with memories. How do you disprove it? You can't disprove it, but you don't have to worry about it. You just can ignore it or not as you like. That's the position of creationism. It's not subject to disproof. It's not interesting. The statement of the age of the universe that has been subject to disproof and keeps coming up the same number, no matter what you do, is 13.7 billion years for the beginning of the and then a long pause, two-thirds of the time, nothing where we are, and then the accretion of the sun and planets at about five billion years, life beginning at about four and a half, four billion years, and just in the most radically recent time, um, mammalian life, 250 million years, quarter of a billion years, primates maybe 50 billion years, 30 billion million years, and humans... In, only maybe a million years tops. And the covering of the planet by subpopulations of African humans, maybe 100,000 years, 60,000 years. And in that time, this species by imagination has over, overtaken the planet's function. For better or worse, 80% of all mammalian biomass is either us or what we eat. So we've, we've run the planet for our own purposes. Now, there's no design that says that will happen. There's no design that says we'll survive that happening. We have to be smart enough to figure out how to get past this impasse of our own success as a species. Saying creationism doesn't help. doesn't help. It doesn't explain the problem, and it doesn't have a mechanism for doing what's next. Praying and waiting won't work. It's, we've been too successful at covering the planet. How you figure out what to do starts with acknowledging the problem. So there's no place in frontiers of science or in any science for any non-testable idea. Science is what can be disproved. And okay. so, and that's my answer. So uh, you have it, fine. It's a piece of American history. It's a piece of American behavior. It's a piece of American sociology, but it is not science. So when you were still working in the lab, yeah. did you still basically have the same system of beliefs or approach to religion that you have now? No, no, I think I hadn't thought about it much. I think I was more worried about getting the paper out first <laughs> and getting the grant out and getting the money and going to a meeting. I travel a lot. I give a lot of talks. Right. So you can look on my CV on the web and you'll see a huge <laughs> amount. I mean, something like, I mean, there's a hundred papers great. in those 24 years and then another hundred papers since, but the first set of papers are all yeah. data-driven. The second set are not. Okay, so I'm still writing. I'm just not bound by my discovery of something through a disprovable hypothesis mm -hmm. being tested. Let other people go that. I will try to understand its importance to the world. So do you think that, in a way, the competitive, competitive nature of science could be why there's this religion of science where yeah, people just... sure. Yeah. But, on the other hand, this country's founded deeply on the right to go as far as you can in a competitive situation. And um, I don't know, have you ever heard of a mathematician who was a professor here 50 years ago named Samuel Eilenberg? Okay. Samuel Eilenberg is a mentor of mine. 
Um, he was one of the generation of Eastern European Jewish intellectuals who got out from under the hammer of the Nazis in time because he was recognized as being such a brilliant mathematician that he was given a job in America. Um, so most of his family died and most of his his uh, cohort died, but Sammy was a professor at Columbia, and once when I was the dean of the college, I asked him to speak to women in science about why they should be, why this was the right life, and he said, on the matter of competitiveness, he says, publish or perish is a terrible, terrible stricture, but it's a wonderfully wonderfully easy gift compared to have the right name or perish, have the right color or perish, have enough money or perish. So I live by publish or perish. It's a lot safer. And that's an, that's an answer, right. okay? This country is free for competition. It's also free for not competing. That's, mm -hmm. So I work now with people who know no science but out of religious conviction do interesting things. I mean, the people who volunteer to be with dying people and change their bedpans and their pajamas they're not scientists, but I am convinced that that my work is to help them. And also another thing, I looked at your CV uh -huh. and your bio, and I know that you teach a course called DNA Evolution and Soul. I do. So I was just curious how in that course do you integrate like both the spiritual kind of elements of it and the more concrete biological Well, of concepts. course, I decided decades ago the deep, the deep first decision is go it alone or don't go it alone. Not going it alone. And so in my center, I don't go it alone. My fellow director is a woman named Cynthia Peabody, a graduate of Union Theological Seminary, and we teach this course since she was a student in it about seven years ago. And we teach it together. And I don't front the theology, and I don't front the religious end of it. I front nature. And I try to find the language to present evolution to theology students, ministers in training, in a way that allows them to confront your question, but what do I do with the Bible? And I don't say, pick me over the Bible. I say, here are facts. How do we fit them in? So I'll give you a, a single example of what turns out to work. What turns out to work in the discussion of Genesis with Cynthia and other people, uh, what turns out not to work is to say, damn it, this is the science. You better believe it because you don't tell people to believe in science. You tell people to follow the argument and show us where we're wrong. Disprove it. Make me wrong, you'll get a Nobel Prize. Make evolution wrong, get three Nobel Prizes. That's easy. Nobody's saying we know this is the final answer. We're saying this is the best answer we've got so okay. far. So um, I think that uh, I think my own text answer to this kind of question was once in this class. Somebody said, what about the literal reading of Genesis? And I said, the literal reading of Genesis requires one-seventh of the time since the universe began to be set aside from change. That's the Sabbath. That's not in nature. That's a teaching about what we have to do in spite of nature. The story of the expulsion from Eden is the story of us as a species who lived in, in, in a heavenly place without sex, without death, without work, and by acquiring the ability to have this conversation, to ask what's right, we were thrown out to where? Into nature, without losing the ability to ask what's right. That makes us completely heavenly in nature. We're, we're trapped in exile forever because we don't have an answer to those questions in nature. They're Edenic. 
So that's how I answer these questions. I don't answer these questions by saying, you're wrong. I say, we're stuck. What do we do? Except begin to understand our obligation to each other. I'm also, this is just kind of a side thing from what I've uh, recently researched a little bit, but apparently there's like now this kind of field called ecological theology. Are you yes, aware of yes, that? Yes, okay, yes. so do you have any thoughts on that field? Well, sure. I mean, it, it, uh, ecotheology, um, it's not, I don't like the word field. It is a way of asking mm -hmm. about our obligations to each other and the natural world. And it takes the position that our obligations to each other are just an aspect of our obligation to the natural world. That there are no passengers on planet Earth. Everyone is, uh, is steered. Mm -hmm. And that you can't hand over your obligation to the rest of the species by saying, I'm busy. So the biblical references in in all three monotheistic religions have to do with be fruitful and multiply and be in charge of this place. The reading of the, the biblical text is very straightforward. The experiment of heaven to give this planet a thinking species with a moral core fails many times. Fails in Eden, fails in, in, in uh, Babel, it fails over and over again. Fails in the flood. The speed, Things are wiped out and started over again. Which, by the way, is how natural selection works, but this is all in the mind. So I, I think the, the field of ecotheology says, okay, from our religious tradition, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Eastern religions as well, what, are, what have we got that other people thousands of years ago saw clearly helps us to understand the boundaries of our obligation, not just to the stranger, not just to our family, not just to what, but to a rock and a cockroach. What's our obligation to the to 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 the to the Atlantic that flooded out five million people? Do we just get angry? Do we understand it? Do we understand we live in it? How do we adapt to it? How do we really control, or do we learn as an aspect of religious life to ameliorate and diminish our risk to the planet in the process of diminishing the planet's risk to us? But those are tough questions, right? I mean, they imply, for instance, understanding the impact of social injustice. Is it right for me to tell somebody who lives on a hundredth of what I live on, you have fewer kids because they're going to burn more coal? It's not right. And yet, if it's not a planetary response, global warming continues. So those are eco-theological questions. What have we got to say to somebody who's suffering Besides, you better keep suffering because otherwise I'll start suffering. That's a serious matter. What, what, is a, what have our religious traditions got to say about a planetary problem? And beyond be fruitful and multiply and run everything. Because we have been fruitful, we have multiplied, we do run everything, and it's, a, it's a approaching a real blow-up. But we are smart, we are thinking creatures, and so ecotheology is a way of saying, let's think about this, and let's not reinvent the bicycle. Let's go back and see what our religious traditions have to say about this. And, and whether, whether it is Sermon on the Mount, or whether it is uh, Isaiah, or whether it is uh, the Buddha, there is no question that you can find statements of modesty and humility without incompetence. You can be modest, and you can help. This concludes this episode of WIG. I would like to sincerely thank Dr. Pollock for his time and insight, and please stay tuned for part two of this podcast with Dr. George Saliba.